front and centre throughout December were the bushfires mm. because we were, you know, going about our daily lives having to wear masks for a very different reason. Yeah, uh, very true. Thought repeatership is taking somebody else's idea and just repeating it. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's called broadcasting. But thought leadership, on the other hand, is actual, actually all about original thinking. By a long shot, people trust technology more than they trust government uh, or any other actors. What we've learnt is that over the course of the last decade, businesses have pursued uh, the efficiency um, as part of their business model, and that came at the expense of resiliency. I describe this as the greatest societal amygdala hijack. We have seen five years of behavioural change in six weeks, <laughs> and and it was imposed on us. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. But we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com so ladies and gentlemen it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to unstoppable today we have rocky scopoletti rocky great to have you here and great to be here Kerwin. Mate, I feel like uh, I do have a little bit of insight on you. You've come and spoke for our K2 Elites before at our, at our masterminds. Uh, and so I've, I've seen a bit of your genius, but I always like to ask our, our guests this question. You know, I know you've done a lot. Uh, you're considered to be one of the world's top futurists, futurologists, um, but that kind of is a broad term. So if you're at a dinner party with six or eight people and the room falls silence and someone turns to you and says, oh, Rocky, that's an interesting name. What do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, I just come straight out and uh, usually put the label to the side, but I tell them that essentially what I do is I study trends and then predict how they might actually impact the world. Uh, and then the follow-on question usually is, well, do you do, are you a researcher? And that's when I respond and sort of say, well, actually they describe us as futurologists. You're and right. so, um, so, so, so essentially that's what we're passionate about is, the identification of trends uh, and then the research of them and then predicting how they might impact the world, people uh, and life as we know it. So, mate, uh, being a futurologist, I don't remember my uh, my school guidance counsellor letting me know that that was actually an option. Um, and, but I did grow up with a mother who was a psychic and a clairvoyant, so I feel like there's a, there's a little bit of room for me to play here. It's almost like you're the industrial age psychic. Um, how, how on earth... Did you go down the path of being a futurologist in the first place? Well, for me, it began with a passion, Kerwin, uh, that manifested itself uh, probably about 16 years ago. 
and uh, uh, and I had the benefit of meeting uh, an absolutely wonderful, wonderful human being, an Australian called Dr. Uh, Hugh McKay. And um, uh, and Hugh, in that, back then, we were doing a project around some of the early technologies. And I asked him the question of, um, uh, and we'll, because we we're looking at millennials and, uh, and technology, and I asked him the question of, well, why don't millennials want to stand in branches, bank branches, for example, when it comes to service? And he replied by saying, actually, I think the more interesting question is why do older demographics choose to stand in a branch when they have the options of not uh, when it came to digital? And I think that was that 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 for me was the catalyst in terms of then sort of saying, actually, there's something deeper mm. occurring here at a behavioural level. And unless we actually understand what's going on from a behavioural level and technological level, we'll only ever get a one-dimensional view. And so when we, when you often hear about technology and innovation, uh, it's been spoken about in the absence of behavioural research. Mm. And what I, I, what I realised at the time was that, you know, you had social research going on over here, you had technology research going on over here, as though these things were independent of one another. But in fact, they're inextricably linked, uh, and so really, that was that was the beginning of what has become for me uh, a life passion, uh, sparked by one of the most remarkable researchers here in Australia. And so, what were you doing before that? Just out of curiosity, what what led you to this? Yeah, so I've been working in the areas of both science and technology throughout my right. whole career. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so the the I guess the the foundations of understanding uh, tech, you know, developments in the technology and sciences uh, were always there, uh, but I had never really thought about the you know the the opportunity of applying them in terms of uh, a predictive capacity, and so research was really what brought it together, and this sort of uh, this desire uh, and curiosity, this unquenchable thirst for curiosity that I had was really what sort of brought those two things together. There were more questions than we had answers for. Um, and, and, uh, and so and, when you had that fateful conversation with Hugh, was it in that moment you're like, was, and is Hugh a futurologist as well? Well, he's a demographic researcher. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and so... And it was his uh, passion for social research and behaviour, which for me, I was on the opposite end of that uh, consideration because I was on the technology side. All of a sudden, there was that penny, penny that, you know, the penny had dropped. Uh, so how do you go from that fateful conversation to actually commercialising this whole concept of being a futurologist? Was that a bit of a journey for you? Yeah, look, it, it really was because at the time, uh, now, again, coming back, this was 16, 17 years ago. Yeah. Uh, technology back then uh, was completely different to what we have today. For example, we were carrying those big mobile uh, Nokia devices or Ericsson's, uh, you know, and that we, all we could do was speak through them and we started texting through them. We're at the very, very early days of the, the, the whole mobile phenomena. Apps weren't even around. 
Um, and so um, back then there were really few people that were um, what I describe as doing thought leadership. There was a lot of people doing thought repeatership, and there's a big yeah, difference right. between the two. Thought repeatership is taking somebody else's idea and just repeating it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's called broadcasting. Um, but thought leadership, on the other hand, is actual, actually all about original thinking, original ideas. And that is what distinguishes the difference uh, between a futurologist and perhaps a futurist. There are many people who describe themselves as futurists, but I don't see any research. Uh, I see them repeating other people's research. And and again, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, It's more of a journalistic perspective, though, because it's like reporting. You're reporting on the information that's already out there, whereas in your space as a futurologist, you're actually in the trenches doing the research, looking at the behaviours. And so with that, I... I'm curious to know what does the day in the life of a futurologist look like? Well, it can begin. Uh, it can begin with a, you know, so for, uh, I'm up at four thirty in the morning. Uh, I spend an hour going through all of the news wires, uh, looking through what's happened in the northern hemisphere um, whilst we've been resting, and so we're quite privileged in terms of our time zones because we get the uh, the benefit of being able to comment on developments that have occurred in the Northern Hemisphere um, first in the morning before the Northern Hemisphere catches up the following day. And so I spend about an hour reading all of the news wires, thinking about what's developed, what's unfolded, what twists have changed. Then I might spend uh, some time responding to media inquiries uh, that might come in all over the world. Um, And because we are ahead of the Northern Hemisphere, Often we're commenting uh, on developments that have occurred here, particularly around COVID and our response to COVID uh, compared to what's happened in the Northern Hemisphere. So reading, researching what's occurred is profound and uh, to to the beginnings of my day. Uh, Then it's all about health and welfare. I'll I'll spend the next hour uh, doing meditation, doing, um, doing some exercise at the gym or going for a walk. I live on the beach, so I'm blessed to see the world, um, you know, that way every day. And it's a, it, it reminds me, it's the first sight I see every day, it reminds me uh, about what the world actually is and how vast the world mm. is and how abundant it is also. Um, and, uh, and then I usually, depending on what, um, what projects I've got on at the time, uh, in an executive capacity, I run the Centre for uh, in, uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution for Optus. And so we do quite a lot of research on a lot of the emerging technologies, such as artificial intelligence, blockchain, robotics. Uh, we're looking at all of these uh, emerging technologies and predicting how they, they might impact enterprises, people and the like. Uh, I also sit on a variety of different boards that include the Australian Payments Council, Community First Credit Union, uh, which is Sydney's largest um, largest bank, and also uh, on the Technology Advisory Board for REST Superannuation, which is one of the largest uh, superannuation funds in the country. And, uh, and also I do some charity work for a wonderful foundation called Wake by Reach, 
Wake by Reach is a um, is a charity uh, founded out of Victoria about 20, 25 years ago uh, to really help underprivileged children in our society. And my area of demographic passion, I guess, is youth. Uh, and so, so, so I, I have a, I have the benefit of doing a whole variety of, of different things, and often I'll be jumping between different projects and initiatives and things that come at you every day. Every day is unpredictable, um, and it's it's wonderful to work that way. And so, I dare say you've got your finger on your pulse in a lot of areas: technology, innovation. Um, but I guess I'm curious from your perspective. Did you see COVID coming or a pandemic coming as a part of, you know, the trend research that you were looking at, although there were no trends that would necessarily predict it? Um, but more importantly, um, what trends did you see developing that have completely shut down as a result of what we're seeing right now? Let's start with the first one. When did you, when did COVID first come onto your radar? Yeah, about Christmas time, because okay. we, could see, we could see the spread uh, of, uh, of the disease from uh, Wuhan province uh, across to Europe. Um, and so, um, and that had principally been uh, occurring through the movement of people. And so it's not hard to then sort of predict that its presence will come onto our shores. Uh, but the impact is really what nobody uh, could have. Mm ever predicted. Um, and so I knew it was inevitable that it would uh, present itself on our shores. Um, and, uh, but, but again, nobody had any idea of, uh, of, its, of its impact. So I'd been watching it so, pretty closely. In so Christmas, it came onto your radar. At what point did you go, holy shit here, there's going to be some serious disruption? Because I know for me, I wasn't as on the pulse as you. I, I came onto COVID January 7th, it came on my radar. Uh, but it was around January 14, 15 that I started going, fuck, this is going to be a big issue. It was January 19, I made my first order for masks for the team and January 24th when we did our first buyer threat security response plan. Yeah. Um, at what point did you go, okay, this is going to perhaps be a little bit bigger than just, um, you know, SARS or a flu season? Well, uh, so so over, over the December to April period for me, uh, I was doing the Australia 2030 research and the Australia 2030 research is essentially about how do we feel about the decade ahead. Um, and so, uh, so now you've got to remember, we were coming through um, the bushfires, the significant mm. impact mm. that the bushfires had on Australian society at the time. And so we're also closing a decade of very turbulent uh, social, political, economic, and technological development. Um, and so it was the appropriate point in time to be asking, okay, if that's how we felt in the last decade, we saw the erosion of trust, we saw our political system uh, essentially uh, disconnect from community sentiment. For example, we had more changes of leadership throughout that decade, throughout those eight years, than any other nation on earth, despite the fact that most of us saw no no uh, reason to change political leadership. 
we had our parliamentary uh, performance, as I as my research shows, uh, was uh, well below parliamentary performance in the past decade. We came through. We we ended the decade economically uh, with a cluster of economic conditions that we had never seen before: interest rates, uh, uh, debt. Uh, we saw all of these things, um, uh, unemployment, all of these things were, were manifesting themselves uh, throughout the, the, the course of the past decade. And so it was a great time to be asking people, given where we've come from, what are we thinking about the decade ahead? And so, again, when I started the research, we were just coming through a point in time where, you know, politically, the uh, Liberal government uh, was experiencing the full brunt of, you know, the Prime Minister not being onshore uh, and being on holidays. We had a Deputy Prime Minister trying to explain bushfires uh, through events such as self-combusting cow manure. Um, <laughs> there was a discord there with a the sentiment mm. of, of people. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, and so you know, we had um, we so COVID in December was not front and centre for Australians. Front and centre throughout December were the bushfires mm. because we were uh, um, you know going about our daily lives having to wear masks for a very different reason. Yeah, uh, very true. Very and, true. And so, and so, uh, so then, so I would say it was more that we were. We had prioritised our, our 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 thinking and where our uh, our thoughts were on events that were much closer to home rather than what was going on overseas. So I'm going to um, assume the, the the sentiment that you gathered in January because you did this over a period of three four months. Is that right? January, February, right. March. Absolutely, absolutely. The sen- yeah, the sentiment in March would have been very different to the sentiment in February. Absolutely, and so to the in January. Question, yeah, yep. so when we look at the question of um, what do Australians believe will impact Australia and the world over the coming decade the most? It was climate change over the mm. month of January and February. And then in March and April, it swapped completely with low economic growth. So, uh, and that was when, you know, the full, if we look at the month of of March, that was in fact cool. And when I was writing the chapter on the economy, and wow. uh, and so I'd, I'd sort of had my uh, I had my framework set for the chapter, and I was probably about two thousand words in when the first seventeen billion dollar stimulus package dropped, and so I had to tear that up. And <laughs> so I started in that week. And then, of course, week two, we then had the state governments coming in with their stimulus packages, start again. Uh, and then, of course, you know, week three, when we had the all of the other keeper programs uh, uh, announced, the $90 billion uh, stimulus announced, uh, you know, again, <laughs> started again. So I couldn't actually write the economic chapter until uh, until the end of uh, until the end of March, and so the priorities um, uh, of Australians have profoundly changed 
And I would well, say interesting. even in March, you were saying in January it was it was climate change. In March it was economic. Yeah. Did 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 social was did social play any aspect of any of the the the, the concerns that you saw people coming through with? You know, well, um, th- th- there's an optimism, yeah. which I think uh, surfaced, which is right. truly remarkable. Now, what I mean by that is that Australian professionals are so optimistic uh, about the role of technology and science over the coming decade. Now, that was irrespective of whether they responded in January, February, March or April. There was no difference. And so that level of optimism, I think, is really unique and distinct within the way we think about our future. Uh, and so that was, that was a pleasant surprise. And so it's not, it wasn't surprising then that when I did a, uh, uh, questions around the future retrospective, so in 2030, if you were to look back uh, on the decade, um, would you have uh, reflected upon technology and science as, uh, you know, uh, enabling you to, you know, fly out of space, uh, to drive autonomously, um, to solve illnesses that uh, that we can't solve today, such as cancer and Alzheimer's disease. We saw that come first and foremost. So the ability for technology and science to solve illness was really the point that uh, that Australians reflect back on to say that was truly remarkable. And so I, I think that's amazing because that speaks to uh, a non-materialistic view, uh, but a more societal view um, of the role of technology and science. Mm. I think that, uh, that's, that's truly remarkable. Do you think with any of the feedback that you got, especially moving closer to March, that any of it was perhaps governed by a level of naivety around the unknown of what we're getting ourselves into? Because one of the things that I discovered early in the piece, so like January 7, I remember coming across it and I was like, why the fuck is no one talking about this? Yeah. And then January 15, why the fuck is, and I kept on saying this all the way through to, you know, uh, beginning of March and beyond. And I was like, why the fuck is no one talking about this? Because everyone's like, oh no, it's not good. It's not real. It's look, whatever the, 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 the assignment was, whether it's a global conspiracy or it's a fucking scandemic, there was a lot of um apathy massive levels of apathy if not borderline you know, progressive ignorance so and again i'm playing a bit of a red team here do you think there's any there's perhaps any level of naivety in some of those responses whereby um we don't really understand um as a country let alone as a global population what what's actually coming next and what what's going to be the fruits of of this tree of covid yeah, so that's a great question, Kerwin, because I, as I sort of detailed in, uh, uh, in the chapter on leadership, is, uh, is I think our um, scepticism uh, about what we were hearing from our politicians mm. who were principally the communicators uh, on COVID at the time uh, uh, I think our lack of trust in the politi- in politicians' political system, which had grown to its all-time low over the past decade, yeah, um, wow. I-, I think played into that. And yes. so, what was fascinating was when you look at when you look at the question of trust, uh, and you look at 
the question of who do you trust to look after your best interests over the coming decade, what my research showed that it was in fact academics, researchers, and independent institutions to whom we look for government. Yeah, is wow. And 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 also sorry, was that you cut out? Then government came last. Came last, yeah. Wow. And so and so, I think this is what 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 happened. We came off a very cynical sort of set of perceptions about government. Uh, and of the uh, built up and accumulated over the past decade, but but I think came to a head during the bushfires, uh, where we in fact saw state premiers uh, and also our chief fire officers at a state level rise up uh, to truly remarkable leadership. But we saw the absence of uh, federal political leadership in that uh, in that in that experience and so then and so then when COVID started to then gain momentum and unfold and where they were the principal commentators on it that's why we reacted the way that we did but it wasn't until the scientists uh, started uh, appearing on our news programs and started coming out and talking about this did we actually start paying attention and so, um, you know, when it, and then when you look at the research around, well, who do you trust to go look for information on COVID? It wasn't governments, right? We, and we were, we were frustrated by the, uh, by the type of information we were receiving. And now this was all around the world. Um, and uh, so people were frustrated by the inconsistent information emerging around COVID from governments, from media organisations, and that's why they defaulted to looking to scientists, people to whom we trust uh, for, um, for our best interests. So you, you've literally written the book, Australia 2030, you know, what to expect in the next, uh, in the next 10 years. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go beyond the book right now because, you know, you, you finished writing in March, April. There's been a couple of months that have passed since then. Um, I'm going to assume that you're seeing some social trends that uh, that are starting to gain momentum that yeah. could possibly stay with us for a very long period of time that kind of are going to affect everything from the way that we eat food, uh, from the way that we transport, the way that we educate. And, and to give context, I was recently on holiday um, in the Hunter Valley. I went to a beautiful restaurant, you know, one of the top restaurants in the, in the Hunter with my partner and, and um, my son and her daughter. And, you know, the long and the short of it is I cracked a very good joke as she was drinking a glass of water. She inhaled the water with such ferocity that she choked and she had to grab her napkin and, you know, basically pour the water out of her mouth and she starts having a coughing fit in a crowded restaurant. Now, I, you know, as any good comedian will, I laughed at my own joke, but more at the response of her. But I laughed so hard that I lost my breath and I started choking and having a coughing fit. And so here we are, the happiest family in this fucking restaurant, possibly the whole Hunter Valley. And then five minutes later, the, the manager comes over. Now, this is a hatted restaurant. And she, and she starts at this beautiful, oh, hi, just wanted to come over and introduce myself. I'm the manager. And I'm sitting there going, oh, wow, maybe she's a fan. Maybe we're going to get free dessert. Maybe they're going to tell us we're the happiest family uh, in Disneyland. And she goes, I'm really sorry to have to say this, but we're going to have to ask you to leave. And I was like, fucking what? come again. And she goes, I am so sorry. She goes, in fact, I'm actually really embarrassed. This has never happened in the history of our restaurant, 
but we're going to have to ask you to leave because we've had a couple of customers become irate at your coughing. And I was just like, hang on a second. I fucking cracked a joke. She choked on a water. I choked on her laughing. And she's just like, look, I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to leave. We've already packed up the rest of your meal. You're going to have to go. Now, I was fucking floored. I, first of all, the, the restaurant, to their credit, uh, they did come back from this in the, in the following days. But um, I was floored. I was entertained pro uh, prolifically. I laughed so hard the whole way home. And I gave my partner all sorts of grief around her vomiting uh, water into her, into her napkin. But I was yeah. just like, holy shit. Yes, this is funny. Yes, it's also concerning. But yes, is this the sign of things to come? Now, let me play out the rest of the holiday. You know, we're in another restaurant driving back in Port, um, Port Stephens. And my son starts run. Just we're waiting to be seated. My son just starts running around the area waiting where we're waiting to be seated. And the 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 waiter comes up and goes, "Excuse me, young man. He's six. You're not. You can't move away from your parents due to the current epidemic and the virus that's going on. You have to stay still and in your chair." And he's like, oh. "And I'm like, dude, it's okay. It's okay. It's all cool." And so we go and we sit down. But then the very next day, we pull over as we're driving uh, driving along. We pull into this uh, to this bakery to get some some food. And my son being who he is, you know, he's kind of just messing around and he accidentally bumps the lady in front of me. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. You know, at this point, I'm on high alert. <laughs> I'm like, mate, just be careful. Remember social distancing. And so then this lady turns around and says to me, oh, just bloody relax. He's a kid. They're supposed to flail about. And I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, I can't get this right. I clearly don't have any social fucking coordination with what's going on right now. And I just said, look, I, I hope I didn't offend you, but he got in trouble yesterday from someone who was doing the same thing. And she's like, oh, oh some people are just too sensitive. And I'm like, should I bring up a mirror right now? <laughs> like, um, but, but again, I'm very much like you. I'm, I'm someone who sees patterns. I see behaviors. I see trends, you know, as they emerge and, and, and as they, uh, they gain steam. And I'm like, oh, holy shit. We have not experienced anywhere near the social implications of what we're dealing with here. Yeah. So from your perspective with the, the breadth and the scope that you have with the finger on the pulse, what do you see as being some of the social implications moving forward? And what, what do you see being affected? Industries, businesses, like where's your thoughts at? Great question and, and, and terrific experiences. And uh, I, I, I thought for a moment, uh, Kerwin, you were going to say, to the waitress, well, can't you ask my wife to leave and, and I can stay? <laughs> <laughs> I had another four days in the holiday, so, you know, oh, okay. and, and a very so, high sex drive, so let's not go there. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I describe uh, this as the greatest societal amygdala hijack we have seen five years of behavioural change in six weeks <laughs> and and it was imposed on us. Yeah. And so... And now it's a mind virus. Well, and there's one other story. Now, and, and now I'll throw one other story in there that I didn't mention. This only happened yesterday. We had a team member in our office and we've got limited um, team in office right now. And we're very, you know, we're all above board and by the law. One team member yesterday afternoon started developing a, a couple of symptoms left immediately, but the whole office panicked and wanted to go home. And I'm just like, fuck, well, this is going to be a productivity hijack as well. So, well, 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 well will it? Because uh, I think... Well, well this, is a, this is a good question. This is a good, this is a good trajectory, I should say. So, so, so what we've learned is that over the course of the last decade, businesses have pursued uh, the efficiency um, as part of their business model 
And that came at the expense of resiliency. And, uh, and, and so what happened when uh, all of the raft of uh, changes were imposed on us and on businesses, mm. was, that's what we found out. How, you know, how, how do you put 40,000 people who are centralised in a, you know, CBD build, buildings all over Australia uh, have to work from home tomorrow? Uh, where's the equipment? Uh, so it came at the expense, I think, uh, of, uh, of resiliency. Organisations had not uh, pursued resiliency within mm. their organisational models. And so all of a sudden, uh, again, it was just thrust on everyone. So I think what's, what, what you're going to see coming through this is that organisations have now learned, they've said, hey, you know, from a business continuity perspective, we're good. We, we pushed thousands of workforces out into uh, alternative ways of working from the home or from wherever. And you know what? Our business continued. Now, some don't. So don't, 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 don't. Um, no, no, I get it. I feel, feel for those. But, we, we, but uh, and so organisations are now saying, well, I'm paying $1 million per floor of CBD real estate. Do I really need those 15 floors, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the city when my business can perform as effectively uh, in a, flexible working structure. So I think we have now commenced uh, the transformation about the future ways of working. Mm. And, uh, and future ways of working has been, and, and, and I think what, what we're now lean, learning about is that ex, we can adapt to exponential change. Now, I've been re researching exponential uh, change for probably about seven years now, and that's one of the things that you observed uh, that uh, that there were some organisations who were able to adapt as and when these new procedures uh, were imposed by health authorities or by by government, state or federal, uh, and others didn't. You know, why? 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 What, what's the difference? Uh, well, the difference is that there is resilience and agility in uh, in leadership and thinking and operations in those organisations that were able to adapt versus those who didn't or couldn't. Mm. And so I, you know, I so I think that theme I think has now surfaced. I think we we, we can now explain why two like organisations in a similar industry, yeah. uh, one can adapt yeah. and one can't. That that's is, really, really yeah, so, so I, I think that's here to stay. Let's go on the other side of the equation now because I'm seeing many positives on the business performance side from a productivity perspective, from an efficiency perspective, from a cost-saving perspective. I think um, there's going to be a huge uh, recomposition of commercial property in some way, shape or form. My sense is it's probably going to be dedicated to a low-income housing because we're going to probably see a greater greater influx of people that are going to be requiring it. But let's go on the other side of the equation, the public-facing side of businesses now. You know, how what trends do you see happening, you know, from everything from, you know, uh, rock concerts to tourism or you know, even just going to the cinema? Like how do you see... You know those those changes. How do you see what changes do you see coming in those areas on the on the on the 
on the social aspects of commerce? Yeah, so we will see a uh, uh, a significant transition um, into things like instead of having takeaway food uh, where you have to go and pick it up, uh, Uber Eats, it'll be delivered to you. All of these models that have been there, I think we will see those now come to the surface because people have now learned, hey, it's a lot more convenient uh, to have it that way. Uh, our behaviour, as I said before, we've had five years of behavioural change, you know, imposed on us in six weeks. Now, a lot of those behaviours are unlikely to change because now people have seen the good. They've now seen that, you know what, digital a digital experience with my bank uh, is pretty good. I don't need to, you know, phone into the contact centre or go stand in a queue. Uh, and so I think all of those things will see us uh, exponentially change the digitization of our of our lifestyles um you know even um you know board meetings over over video in the past though they might have been all face to face where they were you know geographically possible but now boards are realizing that you know what we can run board meetings virtually securely uh and so i think the way we think about um life has profoundly changed where we will see a lot more of our lives become digitized. So, mm -hmm. so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is how interested have we now become uh, about our own personal health and hygiene? Yes, mm -hmm. there are inconveniences, absolutely, about you know, the masks. And again, I, I do feel for our uh, Victorian friends, uh, but how health aware are we now? Um, they're now even predicting, for example, that the flu, uh, the impact of the flu, oncoming flu this winter will be less. Will be less. Yeah. With we all of a sudden are using all of these things, so I I think we have become very very interested in our oh. health and science. Because I've got to echo that. I didn't realize that was a benefit. Because I've always been. I'm not a germaphobe, but I just hate it when people come to work when they're fucking sick. You know, uh, especially when they're, they're, they've got some kind of a virus. And now it seems to be everyone's catching up, with, which is what you guess you'd say is a, a level of common knowledge. Yeah. But that kind of begs it to ask a better, a different question, which is, well, if we're not being exposed to as many pathogens, is there going to be an effect on our immune system? And are we essentially going to be breeding perhaps weaker immune systems and weaker people because we're not exposing ourselves to as much virus? We are over indexing on hand sanitizer and soaping our hands and you know, cleaning spaces. Yeah. Look, I, I would say uh, I would say that uh, nanotechnology and biotechnology mm. uh, research and developments are now on those exponential curves. As we saw in the research, you know, Australians feel retrospectively from 2030 that we'll have solved a lot of these illnesses like Parkinson's disease, cancer, all of these kinds of things. Uh, which is an optimism about uh, scientific development uh, that uh, that we should hold faith in. We've, we have remarkable uh, scientific research institutions here in Australia, the CSIRO, what we're doing at universities. This is really remarkable stuff. Um, and so I would say that as, uh, you know, as we might be physiologically or biologically exposed to different things 
through the course of time, we will exponentially be able to solve a lot of those because mm-hmm. the technologies that we are now seeing surface in gene editing, a whole range of these new fourth industrial revolution sciences will be able to solve problems in a profoundly different way. Quantum computing even, mm-hmm. the ability to distill uh, you know, information, scientific information, will improve the efficiency of scientific research um, profoundly. Mm-hmm. And so all these technologies of the fourth industrial revolution will help us solve a lot of the problems that traditional technologies and sciences simply can't today. And we've seen that right with COVID. We're seeing how complex, uh, you know, the creation of a vaccine is. And the narrative at the moment is now trying to, you know, trying to get us to understand that the vaccine may not be the be-all and end-all. Um, and uh, and so a lot of these new, uh, I think, scientific developments are really going to help be, be driven, I think, by COVID. Um, we will look into the way with which we protect ourselves in a profoundly different mm. way. Supply chains, you know, look at the dependencies that many countries had on China uh, mm. through supply chains. Oh. Uh, that's been now completely rethought. Um, and so I think all of these things uh, are going to play out uh, when we look at, you know, our, our place in the world. It's interesting how this is creating levels of independence on a on a, uh, a meta, macro, and micro level, I um, I do pay attention though to what's going on, you know, in the business uh, and the technology space. And I don't know if you caught there was a live. Mark Zuckerberg did a live. I think it was maybe about four or six weeks ago, where he was talking about the impacts of working remote, all the surveys, their future plan moving forward. Did you see that by any chance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was fucking brilliant. Uh, some really good data came out of there, but I I couldn't I, I couldn't help have miss the obvious drops around Oculus. Um, and it was very, very casually, very charmingly done. But I, I was just like, after the third drop, I was like, holy shit, he's going to use Facebook as a pioneering business model to introduce VR, te- VR technology in the office space. That was my prediction. And I'm still, I'm still solid on that. Um, yeah. Because with this, with, with this um, obviously remote environment, and we've been doing the, the, the services as well, the consistent thing that keeps coming back, I, I, I feel like I'm missing out on connection. I'm feeling the loss of connection. I'm feeling the loss of, you know, looking at another person beside me. With any of the trends that you're seeing coming through, because it's so funny, because going back even 12, 18 months ago, everyone was saying, yeah, VR's great. Yeah, AR's great. But there's not the demand. And so we're not going to see that get really taken up properly for at least another 10 years, maybe more you know, but I know there was people saying at least it's going to be at least another five to seven years away from it reaching a level of critical mass before it has enough people using it, before it actually becomes a, you know, a fully functional technology at a, at a global or even a national scale. And then when Mark was going through his research and dropping the Oculus, I was like, oh, my fucking God, here we go. We Ooh. literally are about to work, walk into the new virtual working environment and the virtual, the remote working environment at the moment. Yes, we're working, we're using Zoom and everything else. But do you see moving forward that we are going to see a relatively fast explosion or at least some kind of a increase in momentum towards the trajectory of using VR or AR in, uh, in an office environment? Or Absolutely. So... If we if we just take a um, so if we just put a you know a, 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 a take a line in the sand and just sort of say well uh, where where are we now at when it comes to you know the desire for physical connection 
uh, versus having that satisfied in alternative ways. If you look at what's going on with the travel industry, for example, the seven top airlines in the world now have a market capitalization the same as Zoom, which which is which is a which is a communication uh, platform. Wow, and so, so 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 if you think about so if you if you start thinking about well um, then if if that's been imposed on us. Uh, then what's what's also unfolding? Well, we've got fifth generation mobile networks being rolled out around the world. The world is spending tel- telecommunications companies around the world are spending 1.5 trillion on deploying fifth generation mobile networks. Now, uh, yes, they are faster mobile, no doubt, uh, but they're a hundred times faster than what you're using today. Uh, they're down to nanoseconds in terms of latency. There's all of the so the, the infrastructure investment uh, for fast, uh, highly immersive interactions is already being laid out. Uh, and so here in Australia, for example, uh, the mobile mobile operators are already deploying their their fifth generation mobile networks. And so that speed alone is going to improve the quality of vision uh, from where, where, where it is today. But I think where you can sort of look at, um, uh, you know, virtu- from virtual reality, I would, I would start thinking about it from an augmented reality. Mm. And what does that really mean? Well, augmented reality is, is principally now introducing other sensory experiences. So let me give you an example of that. Have you been to a... Um, 4D cinema at all, Kerwin? Have you been to? I have. Yes, yes. How cool is that? Yes. Right? And it's amazing. Of, yeah. <laughs> you know when the, yeah. when the spiders. You've got the 3D. You've got water being sprayed on you, air being sprayed on you, things crawling up your back. Yeah, it's great. Exactly. So, so, so when all of a sudden touch is introduced, in other words, another sense is introduced mm. into the experience from visual and auditory all of a sudden it's a completely different experience. And so the ability to emulate uh, the precise sensory experience that you have today in that, uh, you know, in that room that you're recording this in, in my house, will occur within the next 10 years. And so when I think the technology can uh, achieve that level of emulation, uh, that is, I think, when we, you know, when we'll really sort of see, well, you know, if I can, do I really need to travel to Melbourne if I can have that same experience of sitting in the lounge with my mum, uh, you know, virtually or through a hologram and, uh, and, and experience and smell that beautiful home cookie that she, that she makes, you know, oh, wow. because that's what experience is, right? Experience mm. A you know uh, a singular interaction uh, or a singular sensory. It's invoking all of the senses, and the technologies to achieve that will occur within the decade. And we are reaching a critical mass with technology, you know. And as I think there's a great, I think there's um, check it out on Netflix. Can you just do a Google search for me? I think it's called Uploaded, Paul. There's a great um, series on on Netflix called Uploaded, and it's basically about. Um, people, when they are in critical condition, should they wish to choose, they can actually upload their consciousness to an environment, which is in this case, it's like a resort hotel where there's like, you know, 
50,000 different levels. And, you know, every time you want to eat something, you can eat something, you have that experience, but someone in the real world has to pay for it. It's called upload. It's it's, it's absolutely brilliant. So before we jump right into the, the, the concept, because again, with quantum computing and the speed that we're moving at, you know, and, and Neuralink and all these other things, it, it begs to ask two questions. Are we potentially heading to a scenario or a situation? I can't remember what that other movie was where we literally will be sleeping in a suit with a, with a VR set on and we don't leave the house and we become these, you know, these enormous blimps that just interact through a virtual environment. And does that mean that at some point it's going to lead us to being drawn to be completely digital where all of a sudden we're going, well, I don't want to have a physical body. I don't want to have to have a shower anymore. You know, I prefer just to upload my consciousness and then I have to, never have to share again. And then I can basically program and create my own world or I can buy into someone else's pre-programmed world. Now, I, once upon a time, that would have looked like complete science fiction. But, you know, where we're moving to right now, depending on what information you'd be exposed to, you'd go, fuck, I can actually possibly see that happening. Yeah. What's your thoughts? Yeah. So, um, so I think the augmentation of technology in the human has been an area of fascination for us all. Uh, and, and, and I think science fiction has provoked us to, to, to think about those questions. Um, I, I'm forever- and I want to throw something out here, because when you think about it, what would be the best way, one of the best ways to solve all the world's problems in terms of disease, war, everything else, upload them into a matrix whereby they're governed by a series of... <laughs> and that begs the question, are we fucking there already? Yeah whereby yeah. people can interact in an environment where there is low, you know, there is no mortality, there is nothing but health and there is nothing but a, a sea of potential to expand because we're expanding in a network, not on a, not on a planet. Yeah. So, so the augmentation of technology and humans mm-hmm. has, been, uh, has been going on for quite a long time. Remarkably, people who've lost limbs in war zones or through accidents and been able to recover the capacity to walk or to or to move uh, or to have an organ transplant, you know. The, the, so, you know, this has been underway. The science of this has been underway uh, for quite some time. But I think where it got a little bit creepy for a lot of people is when you start thinking about it from an intelligence perspective. And you know, artificial intelligence is the you know the theatre where a lot of these questions, uh, uh, you know, uh, create uncertainty and fear because the capacity for the human, um, human mind um, to, well, or computer technology to uh, match that of the human mind is predicted by wonderful uh, futurists such as Ray Kurzweil. That singularity is predicted mm. to occur in 2029 now that's going to happen this decade so So just for those who don't know just explain singularity for us just for one second because i think that'll burst a few noodles so 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 the the test is often referred to as the turing test which is uh where it becomes indistinguishable between a response to a question uh it becomes indistinguishable in terms of whether it's a computer or a human and so, uh, and so, so that is the point upon which intelligence uh, matches that of uh, of a human. And then beyond that is then questions around how you would then think about augmenting your mind. 
for example, memory. Um, why do I need to memorize all of this information if my mind is connected to the cloud where mm. I can just retrieve it, whatever information Download. I need? Uh, and, and so I think once we start getting into those, that level of thinking about how the mind and technology uh, become augmented, I think that's when it can get really, really exciting. But that's, that, that'll occur in the, in the next decade, not this coming decade, but the next decade, 2030 and beyond, we'll start to see a lot more of that. Um, and so would you call this next generation biohacking? <laughs> well, I think that's the other fear that, that everybody has. Uh, yep. and, I, you know, and, and, and it is a real fear and a real concern um, that quantity of data that has been created and our digital lives were never designed. They just emerged through the course of time. But we've reached a point where we're now actually asking questions about privacy, about identity, about security. We're now asking all of those questions. And one of the things that I encourage people to do is we should be asking questions about gene editing. We should be asking questions about the use of nanotechnology. Now's the time to be asking those questions, not, not waiting until the end of the decade, because for a lot of these scientific developments, there is no turning back. And it's what I call, you know, making the choice between uh, which road do we want to travel on on the, on the next decade? Uh, you know, do we want to go on the, on the road less travelled uh, or on the road most travelled? Uh, it's important for us to be asking those questions now and be involved in those questions. Mm. Uh, rather than, and I think, again, on the back of the last decade, uh, I think we have now reached a point where Australians are much more uh, interested in participating in their healthcare, in politics, in the economy, uh, in technology, in science, more than we've ever done before. Where mm -hmm. in the past we might have just bestowed that trust in government, uh, that's gone. Um, I, I don't believe we will see that. And it's what I refer to as uh, systems leadership, Kerwin. Um, and we're, we're now seeing systems leadership emerge. Look at the remarkable relationship through COVID between federal, state governments and the private sector. It's extraordinary, the level of coordination. Uh, that's systems leadership. I think that's the model that's going to define the, the coming decade. And it will be, you know, uh, nations that have the ability to harness that systems leadership uh, that will, I think, you know, reap a lot of the benefits from a lot of the uh, developments that are that are occurring and will occur this coming decade. This ability, you know, if you look at Australia and our response to COVID, uh, it, that was systems leadership at its best. You didn't see that in Brazil. You're certainly not seeing it in the United States, uh, and uh, and you're not seeing it in other geographies. Uh, and that's why we had that ability to get get ahead of the curve. And you'll see systems leadership evident in other nations that also were able to get ahead of the curve. And mm -hmm. so I, I would hate to, to see us now step back and regress back to leadership of the last decade 
know, now that we've seen how effective this can be, now's the time to sort of say, well, how do we how do we use this? How do we get government to work with industries in a much more collaborative, transparent manner? How do we now start creating policies that reflect the true sentiment uh, of the electorate rather than the sentiment or the views of factions within a major party? You know, how do we now start working towards growing our way out of uh, the debt that we are now in? Um, and, you know, debt, debt in many respects in the last decade, debt was a, was a dirty word. It was, it was, you know, it was seen as the difference between, you know, good and bad management. You know, we have to get used to it. Debt, as we have it right now, is going to be with us throughout this next decade. Uh, and, uh, and and we need to move beyond that. Um, and we need to be in the mindset of how do we grow our way out of this, which is essentially the message that came out of uh, you know, the Treasurer and, uh, and the Ministers yesterday in their budget update. So that, I think, is what's going to make us different, Kerwin. It, it is systems leadership. Mm. Uh, and if we can... If we, <coughs> coordinate uh, ourselves in the way that we have, uh, we can address a lot of the issues that occur when moments like COVID surface. And to think, and to think that, you know, COVID is the end, it's not. It's not. It's just we, the beginning. It's just I, the uh, I had the great pleasure of interviewing David Suzuki a few years ago and he tore fucking shreds off me. It was one of the best interviews I've ever done. I've never been... Um, verbally assaulted by a guest before um but by the end of the interview we had a real camaraderie we had a real understanding and a very very strong uh, i think re mutual respect for one another but one of the things that he laid on me is he says unless we can get used to some form of negative growth economically speaking the world is headed for destruction in some way shape or form whether it's the destruction of humanity uh, or the environment to the point where humanity is sacrificed and the environment will recover and so he said we need to get okay with ideas around negative economics and negative growth and i remember i'd never even fucking contemplated that before um, but i've been thinking about it on the regular ever since that, that interview uh, and he said unless we get used to it or unless there's some kind of an event that kind of sets us back a few decades um you know he says i just don't see any way forward that is going to be you know sustaining self-sustaining at a climate you know a global community or, or a national level so I guess from your perspective, when we look at the advent of all these technologies and when we look at the advent, especially of the debt that's being incurred by, you know, governments all over the world and the trends that you're seeing, do you see us having to accommodate that philosophy that maybe we need to start looking at becoming a lot more self-sustaining, which might produce in some respects negative economics, but it'll produce longer term viability, um, you know, at, at a human level? Yeah, Kerwin, uh, uh, that's a great question. And often when I'm uh, presenting to boards, um, I ask them about, do you have a five-year plan um, and strategic plan? And, and the answer is yes. Uh, well, how can you predict what five years is going to be like? <laughs> you can't. Uh, that is a very linear view of the world. You know, next year we're going to grow 2%. And in order for us to grow 2%, we need this much capital, we need this much labour, uh, and, you know, and, and on we go. 
Uh, but we don't live in that world anymore. Uh, we live in an exponential world uh, where our capacity to predict, um, you know, five years out uh, is ludicrous. Um, you know, five years ago, nobody would have predicted the technolo technological advancements and developments that we have today. And so we've got, we've got to step back from this notion of, you know, being able to have certainty, uh, you know, um, predicted, predicted and then risk uh, mitigated as we, as we move towards that certainty. Uh, that model is done. Uh, it's all about regressing now to the theory of, you know, evolution, uh, Darwinian theory. Those, uh, those who adapt uh, will survive. Um, and so the capacity to adapt, I think, is the critical element uh, in our mm. that we've now, you know, we've now got to whatever that looks like. Yeah, and 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 again, this, you know, this there's nothing new about that. It's Darwinian theory, but that is what will, you know, um, define survival, organizational survival in the future. If we look at organizations that. Are, you know, back in the um, 1920s, the, the Fortune 500 organisations uh, had an average survival life of 65 years. Uh, back three years ago, that had declined down to 15 years. I would wow. say by the de decade, it's going to be south of 10 years. Yeah. And, so, and so what's different? What's, what, 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 what is different? Why do some organisations survive and, and others don't? And what my research shows is that organizations who have this capacity to adapt to a ever-changing world around them are they survivors and it's what i call the constant state of juvenescence right juvenescence defined as that you know the constant state of youthfulness mm. uh, and 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 those are organizations who have you know resiliency throughout the way their organizations uh, work and work and operate they're the ones they're the the ones that are, you know, adapting quite well today. Um, in time, I think, you know, uh, um, we, we will see um, more and more of these organisations um, become change and adapt, I think, to, to those kinds of models. It's, it's interesting. I, um, I first came across a conspiracy theory, I think, in 2002 and 2003, I think I picked up my first book on conspiracies 2003. It might have been David Icke. It might have been in 2002. And I remember not buying in, but not disbelieving, but just being uh, objectively very curious and going, wow, this is an interesting point of view. Um, and, I, and that's one of the things that I appreciate about myself is I can hold multiple points of view in my mind at any one time and not get triggered or have any bias, but just look curiously at each one, you know, based on whatever merits or, 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 or uh, deficits that it has. But one of the things I have noticed is the increase in what you would call the trend of conspiracy theories as a, as a trend itself, but also the trend of people perhaps buying into, you know, conspiracy theories, which, you know, I guess in, in itself, the word, con word conspiracy is being used, you know, a little bit ad hoc here. Are you seeing an increase in the trend of apparent conspiracies, which is a pretty fucking obvious question, but yeah. what do you see the effects of these trends being? Because this isn't going away. And I'm seeing people that were once, you know, very staunch, you know, um, 
non-believers of anything other than what the government or the media says now, like, you know, posting things on the pandemic and 5G. And, and again, I don't know my ass from my elbow, you know, most days ending with why. But what I do know is there seems to be a lot of misinformation, you know, because people talk about fake news. And I'm like, fake news? What about fake history? What about fake science? What about fake data? You know, there's so much fake shit out there, which echoes the point of trust, especially the political level. So what do you see happening in the area of conspiracy as a, as a, as a, as a, I guess you could say as a subject? And how do you see that implicating us moving forward, you know, when it comes to everything from politics to, to governance to, to, to business? Yeah, well, uh, so in, in my research, I asked the question of, uh, of uh, who, do you, who do you think you will trust the most over the, over the coming decade? And by, by, by a long shot, people trust technology more than they trust government uh, or any other actors. And so I think we, you know, that's the direction of where we're heading. But what I would say is that um, we will trust those uh, independent experts um, and institutions more so through time than, uh, you know, those commentators of their work or interpreters of their work. And if you look at climate change, that's a classic. So if you look at, um, there, there, was a, there was a study uh, released a, a couple of, uh, only a couple of weeks ago, which showed that, uh, you know, Australia internationally was rated A for our response to COVID because we listened to our scientists uh, and that was the, the explanation of why we, why we got an A. But yet on climate change, we're rated a D. And so the question here is, well, why didn't we listen to our scientists when it came to climate change? Was it the absence of facts? Well, no. Well, no. The, the CSIRO produced a report back in 2009 which predicted uh, the extremity of the events of 2020. And so did Professor Garnett in his report back in 2007. So why, why in the last decade didn't we listen to our scientists? Uh, mm. And I would, I would say now, um, uh, you know, because of the access to information, uh, whether it's on our devices, whether it's w wherever, we can access expertise, uh, independent mm. expertise, um, you know, at the touch of a few buttons. And so I think that's what we're going to put our, our faith in. Now, Which is exciting and scary at the same time because, again, who's governing the experts? It is. <laughs> it is. You know, and, uh, and as we've learned that, you know, a, a, um, a report or research can be generated to prove any point that you want if you've got the right people in your team. Yeah. And, and so, you know, Edelman had a, you know, a, an amazing and longitudinal study uh, now for about 20 years on the question of trust. And uh, they've created this model, which is all about, uh, you know, the, the, the trust inequality gap. And it's a gap between those who believe, uh, you know, um, uh, experts, information uh, and the like, and those who don't. Um, and the profile of those who do tend to be, uh, you know, professionals uh, from white collar uh, workers, access to a whole raft of information versus those who don't. 
And Australia has the largest in trust inequality gap compared wow. to other nations that uh, are wow. around the world. And so this is a this 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 is this concern me because again to your point, who do we believe? What do we believe? Uh, and you know this discord that we have between the informed and the you know less informed uh, is a real problem. Um, so does that does that bear weight? Because now no one trusts the government. So to me, it's like well, once once an institution has lost respect and lost trust, it either has to be rehabilitated, uh, recomposed, or reinvented altogether. Do you see any any possibility with a transition in the way that we govern? Because I've often looked at the way that we govern and gone, look, there's plenty of pros, but there's also a lot of cons. And when you look at the trust factor, that speaks volumes because how do you govern, you know, how does a leader govern a country? How does a, le how does a leader govern a team if the team doesn't trust them, you yeah. know? And we've seen that with, with, with what you're saying. So is there a requirement for there to be a reinvention of civilization at a governance level? Well, what I what I've predicted uh, is that uh, we, so trust uh, or the restoration of trust in government, uh, I think, is a fanciful pursuit um, uh, because I yeah. think we, we – so I don't think it's a plausible pursuit any longer. I think what we will and, – and, and if, you, if you look at the uh, proportion of people who have followed the major parties, uh, you know, it's been in decline. Um, you know, for, for the last two decades to its lowest point. And so what I think we will see emerge is much smaller independent uh, involvement in our political system. We will see diversity uh, because we will see diversity uh, from parliamentarians who are elected to represent the interests of their community uh, rather mm. than the interests uh, of a political party, which, as we've seen in the last decade, was not necessarily reflecting the sentiment of the electorate. So, mm. uh, so I, I don't think uh, you know our democracy as it is. Uh, it's it's far from perfect, but it's better than anything else that we we, we know of at the moment. But I, 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 so I would think we we will see the composition of our parliament uh, profoundly changed this decade. And I, was, I think yeah. a lot more diversity with that. Uh, and a lot more independence uh, mm. within, our, uh, within our system because really that's that, you know, the last decade was essentially. Uh, you know, so the, what you're talking about is we're going to see politics being taken out of politics. Yeah. Is that, because that to me is the root of the issue in politics is exactly that. Like we, in our organisation, we do everything we can to eradicate politics like everything we possibly can, yet we are trusting a governance system that is coordinated by it. Yeah, well, politics, uh, you know, politics is not necessarily a bad thing, I don't think, uh, but it's got to be constructive. And, and, and that's, that's what we haven't seen uh, in the last decade. And but it's interesting. No one ever refers to politics as being constructive. You know, when you hear someone, oh, why did you leave there? Oh, I left there because the politics was too great. 
you, you never hear go, oh, why did you stay there? Oh, I stayed there because they had great politics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I say that, at a, and I say that at a commercial level. I'm not talking governance here, but I've yeah. heard, you know, I've interviewed thousands of people, and I've heard hundreds of times people saying, why well, the reason I left there was because there was real issues with politics. Yeah, and um, it's always referred. To, I've never heard politics referred to in a conversation in a term of endearment or in a term of esteemed positioning yeah. or or practice. Yeah, so that's about culture, right? So if you mm. look at if you look at what's going on at the moment with the millennial workforce, where one in two of them would prefer to work for themselves rather than work for a organisation, well, why is that? Uh, well, uh, it's because they don't believe in the hierarchical model. Feel uh, mm. as though they want to make a contribution rather than being told you know, uh, what to do, come to work, you know, Bundy on, Bundy off. The, 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 they've got their own views about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, in a world that is awash with capital and has an unquenchable thirst for entrepreneurship, right, they're saying thanks but no thanks. Uh, and so so I think, again, all of these things, that's that's the spirit of independence, that's coming through in the choices that we make. And I think what uh, what we're going to see is that that's going to be applied to a political environment because yeah, right. we've become much, much more uh, interested uh, mm. in our policies than ever before. And um, I think I said this to you now because this is the second time we've tried to do this interview. Um, and I'm glad because this one's fucking better, as I said it would be. But I remember saying to you in that interview, like, I've never had a fucking interest in politics at all until the bushfires. And as soon as the bushfires went down and I saw the massive lack of leadership, I became, I went from not voting and happy to get a fine for it to being a very fucking aggressive, almost you know, active, almost aggressive um, voter or interested anyway in, in the political environment because I just, I'd got to the point where, you know what, I've, I've had a fucking enough. Yeah. But I've, I do have one more question because I am limited for time. I've got to, I've got to be out of here in about five but I, I look at the current state um, of economics and, again, I don't feel like anything anyone has actually felt the brunt of this yet. I think we're currently sitting on a cushion of stimulus, you know, that is going to push us further in debt that we're probably going to feel for an extended period of time. But at some point, there's got to be a crunch. Yeah, that's my feeling. Unless, and, but at the same time, I've been saying that at some point there's got to be a, cr a crunch for the last eight years and there still hasn't been a crunch. You know, all, all, all economics have defied all economic indicators. But when we look at the situation we're now, it's not just, it is economic, but it's a lot of that has been driven by unemployment. You know, we're predicting rates of, you know, I think it's conservative to say 9.75% um, unemployed. You know, I think that's conservative. If we can manage that, that's great. But what we are seeing now is we are seeing a lot of people being paid a lot of money to do nothing. We are seeing now a lot of people who are being, you know, uh, who have lost their job, lost their employment, lost their business. And they've got to sit there and wait to be for, for recomposition, you know, in emerging industries, emerging technologies, emerging businesses or businesses that will grow further and faster. But the, the way I look at it now, I've been, asking, I've been asking myself this question, how do we get out of this without, in some cases, you know, either recompositioning really quickly or moving to, you know, a model that some people have referred to in the past where we actually start looking at the prospect of universal income. Um, and I look at, you know, some of the stimulus that's being dropped. I'm like, what's the fucking difference, you know? Where do you see universal, or first of all, your views on universal income, and do you see universal income actually having the potential to, 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 to get some kind of airtime, considering the situation we're in at an at a at an employment perspective? Yes, is the answer. Universal income has uh, has a role to play, 
absolutely. And uh, but the the secret here for Australia is that we have a remarkable history with the oldest cult, living culture on 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 the planet, uh, and it's entrepreneurship, innovation. Uh, you know, the, our indigenous history on in, innovation is something we should be deeply, deeply proud of. And we have a remarkable history in, the, in, our, in our modern history of innovation and entrepreneurship. We need to grow our way out of this. And the way we do that is through our remarkable people. And, with our, and uh, you know, the, we have this optimism about our future which I think is really the secret in our culture. Mm. And so we've got people who have the capacity to adapt because we've seen it uh, and we've got this world of emerging opportunities over here. Uh, What's getting in the way between the dog and the post, right? It's all of the systems and things like that. That's why it was so pleasing to see the government put the emphasis on the skills programs. Mm. The skills mm. shortages. We talk about unemployment. Well, guess what? You know, we're predicting we need 200,000 technologists over the next three years. Where are they? Where's the roles? We're not graduating mm. enough. We're, you know, we've uh, got a skills Where's shortage. the training? Where's the where's the schooling? Where's the, you know, the, yeah, where's the intelligent the thinking that goes towards the kids that are now in year 10 as to what they're going to do when they when they graduate? Exactly. And so this, I think, is the opportunity before us. We mm. need to take the systems leadership that we mm. have work so successfully for Australia uh, in how we've responded to COVID uh, and commercialise it. How do we now deal? We, we saw systems leadership be so effective in dealing with the health issues We've seen it being effective in terms of dealing with the economic issues as they are today. And as we look to our future, we've now got to see that collaboration uh, and that level of coordination, cooperation between private sector, public sector, between government uh, and other institutions. Systems leadership, I believe, if applied, effectively we'll see Australia recover out of the economic crisis much better than most other nations. Mm, and I think we will. Rocky, uh, I knew this was going to be better the fucking second time around. Whenever I have to do anything twice, it's always fucking better because the universe has my back. But, mate, you, uh, you're you an incredible human being. As I said, we've had you speak for our K2 elites. You've got a book, Australia 2030. It's about to come out. Is that right? It's It's out. It's, it's, it's already out now. It's on in bookshelves all over the world. You just can't go to them because you're in Victoria. But can, they can buy it online. Where's the best place to get it? Amazon.com. And have you got any other books? Have you you've written another? I have. Youthquake. Youthquake uh, 4.0. 4.0. Exactly. And where can people find out more about Rocky? Uh, at uh, uh, well, just find me on LinkedIn. Connect with me. Uh, I'm very True active. professional. <laughs> on True professional. He's on LinkedIn. Ladies and gentlemen, Rocky Scopoletti, mate, my honor, my pleasure. Thank you for so much for being on Unstoppable. Pleasure. It was great. Thanks, Colin. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. 
There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.